Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. Social media has changed the way we talk to each other, changed the way we read, the way we work, changed the way we consume news, music, sport, television and art. It has even changed the way we think. So what does this mean for politics and how parties, campaigns and activists communicate with voters and how voters communicate with politicians? I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope, and I'm going to be discussing that with Progress Director Richard Angel, and Journalist, Director of Political Human, and host of the Zeitgeist Tapes podcast, Emma Burnell. Emma, can we start from the very basics of this? What do we mean by new communications and and what kind of new political communications have we seen in the past few years? Well, I mean, what people usually mean is new media. So Mm. um, much more focus on online, um, much more focus on sort of grassroots driven online rather than the sort of very top down managed communication that was sort of the thing for about sort of the last 20 years Mm. everyone knowing exactly when to smile when your pager goes off and that sort (laughs) of thing so what you've got is a lot more focus and Labour the party but also the organizations around the Labour party have come on in leaps and bounds I mean between 2015 and 2017 the way that they changed how Mm. they did online was extraordinary because it felt like in 2015 the Tories were were miles ahead of of Labour particularly on um, stuff like Facebook and then by 2017, it almost seemed like a completely different game. Was that so much how the parties were using it? Or was that also changes in the way that, that Facebook worked? Probably a bit of both. Facebook is really opaque. It's almost impossible to tell what works on Facebook properly. <laughs> you, know, you have to beta test everything over and over again. And they're constantly changing the algorithm. Yeah, there are changes they tell you about and there are changes they don't tell you mm. about. So it's really, really hard. But yeah, I think it was a combination of much more organic sharing in 2017. We had a more excited base and they were sharing things that nobody knew were even an issue. I mean, ivory trading was like one of the biggest issues in the 2017 election. Did you know that? Like, It's just bizarre. But that was the sort of thing that people saw their aunt posting on, posting on Facebook. And, you know, completely organic, very, very driven by the campaign groups and just completely different from what we thought the air was uh, mm. was in, you know, in terms of, of traditional media. What do you think is the most important platform these days? Is it is it Facebook? Is it 
email list or, or is it? Is it, it is absolutely else? not email list. Nobody. When did you last open a campaigning email <laughs> from anybody? <laughs> I mean, obviously, I read my progress yeah, email every course, day. Yeah, of course. Please sign up. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would say it's Facebook. People in politics think it's Twitter because that's where people in politics mm. talk to e- or talk past each other. But actually, Facebook is where where your punters are, and that's where getting something, as I say, organically shared on Facebook is worth its weight in gold. And so, email is just kind of not a not that felt like a, email is like leaflets. Really? We do it because we think we have to do it. But I mean, an email is literally the ele- electronic equivalent mm. of, of leaflet drops. But leaflet drops do work. Like the Lib Dems use them for a reason. They are a way of getting information out. They're not a way of getting information out. What they are is a way of being visible in the community. So they work for that, but nobody reads them. You don't put information on a leaflet that you actually want people to know. What That's you want. a good leaflet you can read without reading. Well, yes. Um, I was thinking you've got between the door and the bin to read a leaflet. You've got between the door and the recycling. Yeah, but, of course. Of very... course. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't run Sarah for three years for nothing. <laughs> but uh, what they are is a way of saying, we are in your community and we care about you week in, week out, rather than just at election time. Gosh, our members must really think we love them. Because <laughs> we do, listeners, because we do. Richard, I was going to ask you, what, what do you think this means for the old school campaigning techniques that we all kind of know so well? Um, you know, door knocking, billboard posters and, and media coverage in newspapers and television bulletins. Are they all obsolete or, or do they still... I think they're not obsolete, but what they don't have is the monopoly they once had in our politics. I think that's the key bit. The, the one thing I would say that's different to what Emma was saying is that what is happening with the new media and these uh, this emergence of new sites to propagate news is the absence of journalism mm. and journalists is that it is being done that because we all have read a newspaper and watched the news, we therefore know how to be a journalist, right? In the same way that I once went to school, so I'm totally qualified to be a teacher <laughs> and like nothing more could annoy my teacher friends. And there is actually a skill in being a journalist. And um, often there is... Uh, I, I was having lunch with a journalist today. Is like you know, the integrity that they feel in their profession, like the fact that they have professional standards, the fact that joining the the National Union of Journalists is a is, is a thing of both quality as well as status by your form of job. That is essentially being undermined. And what what sometimes the role of a journalist is to do is to take what di- what different opinions are having, and essentially what you have inserted is the activist instead of the journalist and there is a reason for that and you know on labor lists sometimes my favorite columns are by luke akehurst he's not a journalist not pretending to be he has a really strong opinion that he delivers really well and there's a role for that but equally we don't want that to be the new monopoly in our politics no i i mean i think that there are two different things there um so what you've got is campaigning Mm. which is about activists and and that kind of communication. And then political journalism, which I I mean, as someone who's literally finishing my MA in journalism, I completely agree with you about the value of doing it properly and doing it right. And it is a different skill. And one of the things that I've found in terms of my own writing is that I'm moving from opinion writing, which is a perfectly valid form of of journalism, Mm. but it's not the same as analysis, which is what I prefer to do now. So rather than saying... I think it's really important that everyone should vote Labour and here's the five reasons why, which is what I've been doing for the last mm. 10 years or so. Um, Very I'm, well, I must say. Well, thank Always you. good pieces. <laughs> we don't always agree, but we always enjoy it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, I'd like to go back to that, Emma. I know, <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be a nice <laughs> politics to have? Carry on. Yeah, remember when you and I were so different? <laughs> <laughs> 
but I think there is a, a role for journalism in particular that isn't activist, but is kind of like, look, I've been in and around Westminster for 15 years. I know kind of how the currents work. Here's where I think this is happening and why, mm. which is a different thing from saying this is what should happen. And I think there's been too much conflation of journalists whose job it is to say, here is why this is happening, mm. with you therefore think that is a good or a bad thing. Um, you know, so all of the the abuse that gets aimed at, say, Nick Robinson or Laura Kunzberg, because they're reporting on what's happening rather than saying they're giving their opinion on what's happening. And people just assume that that is their opinion is that this is the thing. Um, so, you know, for example, any reporting that happens on Labour's current rather nasty anti-Semitism crisis, what you then get is people who don't see that feeling that any reporting of it at all is in itself inherently biased rather than people who are saying, look, this is the big thing that people are talking about in Westminster. I think that's, and that's why it's important. I think that's really important because often the role of Nick Robinson or Laura Kunzberg, whatever, is to give you the complete picture. So so somebody comes on the uh, TV, John McDonald was on the Mar programme yesterday. He had a line to give over on IRA, for example, and the international definition on on anti-Semitism, but equally, those journalists will be hearing, I've told today that, that, that the Leeds office are briefing a slightly different position to John McDonald, that they're going to have this caveat, what they're calling a free speech clause, and I call a right to be racist clause. But the And so for the viewer, because you want to hold powerful people to account, the role of the journalist is to say, here's the full picture. So this is what they want to tell you on the screen, but this is what they're saying in their private chats. And the role of journalists is sometimes to move between those two rooms. And what that has been perceived as by the viewer sometimes is them giving opinion when actually they're giving insight. And I think that's quite important. One of the things that's happened with it, and I had an experience of this in the last uh, 24 hours, we had the JLM conference yesterday and somebody, Jasmine Beckett, who stood on our NEC slate, asked a question saying, in light of Jeremy Corbyn's recent comments, do you think he needs anti-Semitism training? And John Lansman came back and said, well, we all need a bit of training every now and again. And Jeremy Corbyn's committed to lifelong learning, right? So anybody vaguely in the know about how British politics works perceived that as he thinks Jeremy Corbyn needs anti-Semitism training, right? I tweeted that, other people tweeted it, JC report, et cetera. Suddenly it's like, this is fake news, all he said. And then it, it, I, I had a thousand tweets last night about this. And John replied with like, oh, little old me, I was just saying, it's like, you're a pro, John. Like, you know what you're doing. They knew how it was. That was definitely how it was received by everyone in the room. But it it then became this other thing. And then suddenly for being the people who interpret the slights in politics as what they are in a power play, you're suddenly like, how dare you have taken it out of context? It's like... What's also interesting, I think, is is how these new communications and that kind of going around the interpreters changes politics as well. Mm, because definitely. actually, I remember when... I used to work in the lobby in Westminster around the time that Corbyn started doing PMQs. And obviously his his questions would obviously be long, slightly meandering, covering a lot of ground, but actually not being particularly incisive questions. And so uh, all of the journalists would kind of leave afterwards and kind of go, was that very good? It didn't feel particularly incisive. But it quickly became clear that what he was actually doing was setting out a, a short speech that could then be cut up and posted directly to Labour supporters on Facebook so that they could see what he was saying. Yeah, rather so the than purpose allowing... of PMQs is not to 
hold the government to account, but to be an authoritative fora to get across a message on Facebook. But previously, one of the other things that you would do in PMQs was have a question that could be clipped easily for the six o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news. And actually, it was going around the journalists saying, we don't need that. We can choose our own clips that go out to the supporters. And that was a uh, you know, that was a kind of really early sign that that people in his office were thinking very differently yeah. about communication. Techniques. I mean, it's very, if, you, if, if you've read um, Aisha Hasharika and um, Tom Hamilton's, Hamilton's yeah. book on PMQs, I mean, the, the role of PMQs is constantly evolving. And it's no, you know, it has been a very different thing. It was a different thing once the radio started going in. It became a different thing again once TV cameras went in. Every leader uh, and every prime minister um, uses it differently. But yeah, you're absolutely right. What they were doing with PMQs there was was thinking how best to use what Jeremy's strengths are and what and how to avoid what his weaknesses are. And they did that and they've done that very successfully. That has worked very well to turn PMQs into a thing you can clip for Facebook. Whether it's what you should or shouldn't do with PMQs, that is a different question. Are we holding the government to account fully? I mean, with my own stance on Brexit, I would say, no, absolutely, we're not. But um, it, what it has done is engage a lot of people in a part of politics that they weren't engaged in before. And what's interesting as well, I think, is that neither Corbyn nor Theresa May are particularly naturally adept at things like PMQs. But what the Conservatives haven't been able to do is work out how to use that to Theresa May's advantage in a way that they clearly have done for Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, because she tries to use it like she's David Cameron. Yeah. And she ain't no she David ain't. Cameron. Like, <laughs> she ain't no David Cameron. Which is really Cameron sad because he was <laughs> rubbish. Yeah. And she's not even that good. So, like. Yeah, exactly. They're still thinking of it in yeah. the very traditional way. I mean, um, so they they haven't moved on in that way and they haven't found a way to make it her own. And she doesn't own it at all. And she doesn't command the house. And even before the election, when she was still riding pretty high, it still wasn't her forte. And the Tories aren't really getting out the traps on this, are they? The problem is the alt-right are, and they are, I mean, essentially you've got fascists infiltrating UKIP and UKIP people infiltrating the Tories. That seems what's happening on the right. It's not that, you know, conservative... Uh, a Trojan horse happened. inside a Trojan horse. <laughs> uh, I mean, that is literally what... <laughs> to open what, it up and go, there's another gift inside. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, we kind of have that on our side, don't we? The kind of Chris Williams purists inside the momentum pragmatists that are then infiltrating the Labour Party. So it's a kind of the mirror image of that is happening. But I suppose because the leadership of the Labour Party has been captured by that politics, that is like squat box is a more mainstream thing than some of the alt-right sites in the UK are well, at the I moment. Say, but... I mean, Guido Fawkes has been uh, mainstream for, for 15 years now. Um, and oh, I wouldn't okay. say that there's that much difference really between squat box and Guido. They're both on the extreme ends of, <laughs> of their politics. They're both biased media. They're both biased media that are briefed by um, very senior people. I don't yeah, think there's that point. much difference. Okay, that's really interesting. I think we do need to take a very short break there, but we'll be back just after this. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform, supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. 
Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Hi, I'm June Sarpong. And if you like the Progressive Britain podcast, then we ask you to subscribe, rate or review it on iTunes because that's how we reach a larger audience. And that's what progressive politics is all about. We were talking earlier about how Facebook algorithms and things like that change the nature of how communications work so frequently now. And, and obviously it's you know less than 10 years ago that you would never have dreamed of trying to use Facebook as a real uh, campaigning tool in politics. Is there a difficulty around this that you, you end up putting so much time, effort and money into a, a platform or a specific type of technique only for it to become obsolete and, and do you think this makes it harder for grassroots campaigns to get up and going and, and get heard? In many ways it's uh, much easier as a grassroots campaign to be heard you just have to have the issue that catches fire and actually it's those voices that are much more authentic so that's what I was saying about the the ivory ban thing I mean nobody sat in Labour HQ and thought what we really need to focus on is the fact that Theresa May has taken something out of the manifesto about a ban on ivory sales mm. but actually people really like elephants and, and animals mm. and so somebody got hold of this pushed it forward you know it was you know a tiny thing and yet it traveled through Facebook like um like like nobody's business and um, so the difficulty, particularly if you are like me, a communications consultant, is knowing exactly what will work and what won't um, and making sure that you've got the right messages. So you just have to make sure that what you're doing is being as authentic as possible. You can't fake grassroots. It becomes very obvious. And I think one of the things that really has changed in the last sort of 15 years is people are much better at spotting that than they used to be. So I was thinking about the swift boat stuff that happened to John Kerry in 2004. I don't know if you remember that, but then um, these basically he um, was a veteran from the Vietnam War, uh, had two purple hearts. And all of a sudden, this AstroTurf, uh, as they call it, sort of fake grassroots um, group was set up called Swift Folk Veterans for Truth, um, saying that he hadn't done what he um, what he'd won his purple heart for. And they absolutely stormed through very um, young and fresh social media at that point and got that message hammered home. And now I think that wouldn't work. That kind of muddying of the waters is pretty well dispatched pretty quickly. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't all, I mean, we all curate our media to our biases. But the reason I think that would work less well now is because that bias wouldn't come into my stream. So if I were a persuadable voter, I wouldn't see that necessarily because it would be it, it's it's would be contained within the antibodies of the hard right in America. Yeah, I spoke to someone who uh, sorry on your point about the ivory trade. I spoke to someone over the weekend who used to work at a big uh, online campaigning platform, and they said essentially their entire model was pretty much based around bees because people will well about the bees. People want to save the bees. And then you can do all of the kind of, you know, possibly bigger P politics stuff campaigning. But essentially that is all subsidized by by the bees. But your point there uh, about the... The, the lot isn't getting any better. They're not sorting it out. <laughs> <laughs> the bees are still stuffed. 
Um, I thought they were getting better. I thought things were slightly better for bees now than they were to a year or so ago. Haven't we banned all sorts of awful pesticides? I've no idea. <laughs> <laughs> this is, but, but what you were saying about that is not they, what I came here to talk about. <laughs> about the astroturfing campaigns and this kind of these. Uh, you know, the, the kind of bad faith interpretations and, and things like that. Frankly, it felt like a few years ago, everyone was slightly concerned about uh, filter bubbles on their social media. And to be honest, God, I, I, wish, I wish I had a filter bubble. <laughs> I feel like there's too many things that I disagree with on my social media feeds these days. But how, how do we move past that? How do we, you know, actually create when you are outside of, you know, are, are able to get into other people's filter bubbles, have actual conversations mm. rather than ones that very much start from trenchant positions and just get worse? Uh, I think, I mean, I think the problem is, is that we don't recognise how weird we are. Mm. Um, we spend our lives thinking about politics, talking about politics, being political, being actively uh, involved in politics. And we have these huge, huge rows um, with each other and with other people. And we do this on social media. And we don't realise that 99% of the country uses Facebook to share recipes and cat pictures. And I mean, to be fair, most of my Facebook is my cat. But yeah, and that is actually so when the politics comes into their Facebook feed, it's just a small part of it. Whereas for us, it's almost 80, 90% of it, um, particularly on Twitter. So I think the first thing to do is recognise how different we are in the way that we talk about, think about, focus on politics. But this awful thing of people in politics who say, oh yeah, ugh, my friends from school, like they share this stuff. As if like that's the only real, <laughs> that's the only bit that's outside the algorithm. They're, they're the only people they haven't chosen to be friends with because yeah, they yeah. were the people that chosen for them because they went to school together. Everything since has been a kind of active choice of where they work or where they live. Since then, it's really funny. There's this kind of sneering of the like, oh, the news, the the, the shares that got through because my friends from school was like, you mean normal people? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And yeah, when you do have something about the ivory trade um, posted in between your auntie's holiday to Thailand and your recipe for for cookies, it just feels more normal. And then you can have a conversation. Oh, I didn't know that was happening. And I think the one of the biggest things that we need to be able to to do is allow people to not know stuff. Everyone is assumed to have a position straight away. Um, and what's something that I, and you you know, you've heard me bang on about this before, Connor. We call people Tory voters mm. and then we expect them to be able to change their minds. <laughs> it's like, no, she's not a Tory voter. She's someone who has once voted Tory. Yeah. Uh, and there's a difference. Um, you stop telling. And even if people, they vote Tory four or five times, yeah, that doesn't necessarily doesn't mean they're them, a Tory. If you walk down the street, and you, um, maybe not this street because we're in Westminster, but if you go somewhere else and you ask people to describe themselves within 10 words, very few of them will say Labour or Tory or you know, have any sort of political descriptor in there because that's not how most people identify themselves. So the thing to do, um, coming back to your point, Connor, is to talk to people in the way that they talk to themselves rather than try and go straight in with a hard campaigning message. I think Navarra Media have been very good at that recently. Mm. And I think they use the World Cup very effectively yes. for that. And it was a, for those of us who have always recognised the role of place in our politics, you know, never wanting that to be exclusionary thing. It's not nationalism like the SNP or the right, but recognise there is place. Seeing the Navarra Media broche lists kind of embrace football, but also the flag and some of the, you know, the three lions and some of the things that have been icons of Britishness which normally that bit of the left has really 
pulled away from what I thought was quite interesting and I thought they did a very good service for themselves in that process actually. Perhaps is, is some of the problem here that the way that online communications work and, and how we are essentially in a sense a slave to the way that these algorithms work is that the best way to get the most out of them is by finding who your your kind of pool of potential supporters are or supporters who might be who range from very who care a lot to being quite soft and essentially the way that getting a message out on facebook works is you need to get the people who are very hard supporters of you to share it to the soft ones to get them enthused and does that essentially entrench some of the divides that we're seeing and, and does it possibly explain a little bit about why both Labour and the Tories currently seem to be stuck on 40% in the polls so that you can't reach across to the, the soft voters from the other side. I think the issue we have is that there are two things that you need to do with political communication and at the moment they're kind of antithetical. Hmm. So you need to enthuse your supporters and Labour's really, really good at that at the yeah, moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I was working in Ilford North on uh, election day and there were tons of people that momentum had brought there uh you know and fair play to them you know Wes Streeting who's the MP they're not your natural momentum supporter but they knew it was their local marginal um and there were you know hundreds of people in those and um, those Corbyn t-shirts that looked like a run DMC logo you know oh, what yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. and you know fair play they came out and they did their bit and so we're very very good at that enthusing part but in order to do that, what we're delivering is the most hardcore of Labour messages. That then doesn't necessarily do the other job, which is the persuasion part. So the problem we've got at the moment is that we've got an awful lot of enthusing and not an awful lot of persuading. And the leadership uh, and the party are gambling on that being enough. Um, it may be. Uh, the Tories are useless and fading fast and have no policy and Brexit's going to be a disaster and they will have to own that. So it may well be enough. Um, we shall see. Finally, I want to talk about the kind of like the next challenge for Labour down the line, which is we seem very good at using new communication techniques at the moment to talk about radicalism and, and getting people enthused for that. But obviously, once you get into power, that then becomes a very different question. Uh, and I just kind of wondered what your both of your thoughts are on how you carry on to communicate radicalism in power in, in the modern day. Well, the traditional adage is you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. Mm. And then Donald Trump mm. campaigned on Twitter and governs on Twitter. And it's, <laughs> and it's horrifying to watch, but it's kind of working for him. It's actually the most horrifying Thing. he can change we'll see in november <laughs> we, we will well no i don't think it'll be as bad for him as we would like it to be no. and he'll turn it being bad for him into it being good for him somehow there's that that's that's it because it won't be the people that have risen up to give him a mm. democrat house it'll be the democrats have thwarted his best attempts to build a wall and make someone else pay for it or whatever uh, to be racist and unpleasant to people with no impunity or under the rule of law. And I think if Labour were to win, that would be a similar model that they would go with. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn is not going to govern this country. He does not do detail in any way, shape or form. He does not make decisions. He backs causes. That's what he does. And he'll, in that sense, he'll be like kind of perfect chairman of the board in that position as prime minister. So he needs to turn being prime minister into a campaigning job. Yeah, and it, I think he will govern on Twitter. Like he will, 
they'll send out broadcast messages about things. The person who run the country is John McDonnell from the Treasury and a combination of Seamus Milne and Andrew Murray from the Cabinet Office. And that should really be a wake-up call for certain people. But I think that, that that's, that's the model they will go down. But it will end up being insufficient to the challenges of the country, the way the Trump administration is. But the Trump administration thing seems to be working for him. And that's what's most worrying. I mean, it, it, it is. As, I mean, I don't think the blue wave is going to be a big enough blue wave in November. Whether he'll get a second term, whether he wants a second term, maybe he'll get a second term just so he can stay out of jail. But it's working for him insofar as that he's still president, but he's not able to do an awful lot with it. Um, he hasn't built a wall. He hasn't, you know, sorted out North Korea. That seems to have gone completely wrong. So he's president, so what? at the moment is kind of like, you know, he's, he's not getting an awful lot done. And that is the worry, isn't it? Will we get what we desperately need to get done to change the country done? I think the problem the left has is it's much, much better at the language of campaigning than it is at the language of power. And that's partly because we have an analysis that's not just about inequality of wealth, but inequality of power which makes us very uncomfortable when we get power. We're not very good at, at holding that power and owning it. And we talk about wanting to give power away, but you can't give something away until you accept your ownership of it. And so I think that we need really you know, uh, to look very strongly at how we talk about owning power and how Labour co- becomes confident in that ownership of it without becoming you know, uh, dictatorial, <laughs> um, which is you know, a, a different thing altogether. I'm not sure we have a language for that yet. In fact, this is something I want to go and investigate and do a PhD on. So, you know, please don't invent the language of it before I can do, <laughs> go and do that. But it is, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating question. The Conservatives are very good at sounding like they should be in power and Labour are very good at telling them why they shouldn't. But we're not that good when the roles are reversed. And the danger is if you look like you're good at it when the roles are reversed, that confirms your red Tory status. And I think we should try and think of these things as a kind of custodians of power in that sense, Mm. in that we do kind of get it to give it away. And we don't, we don't seek power for our own interests. We seek it for other people's. And, you know, the point of the labor movement being founded was that if working class people around the table, they will make better decisions. It wasn't actually, it was called the Labour Party, not the British Socialist Party, because it was not an ideological pursuit. It was about an analysis about who should have the access to power. I was talking to somebody at a wedding the other day and they were having a go about Dave Prentice being a governor of the Bank of England and that meant that he was now part of the kind of boss's class and would sold out working people. I was like, literally the trade union movement campaigned to be at the top table where they're deciding what normal people's mortgage rates are. Because like, yeah. that really matters. And if it, if it is suddenly a betrayal by taking that place, we can never possibly win. I was like, oh, you believe in a revolution. Fair point. Shouldn't be in the late party. Bye. <laughs> and, um, but, the, um, but that was what they were getting at. Because that's ultimately... But, but you've got from that Ramsay McDonald moment of uh, going and heading up a cross-party government, a betrayal in the early part of the late party that we're suspicious of anybody who gets near power because they're just two seconds away from betraying the movement. And it, it's so counterintuitive because it means you're not able to pursue it in the same way no absolutely and you know that is the 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 problem of the left the dichotomy of the left is that we we don't trust anyone who has power and yet we seek power Um, and also i would like to say that you have just proved my point about how weird we are that that's a conversation you had at a wedding (laughs) (laughs) i i I totally accept that apparently i was a um 
uh, a point of amusement that I was even there that somebody as evil and right wing as, as <laughs> I had attended said event. So I was um, kind of poked and prodded like I was in a museum <laughs> of, uh, of this old third way mantra that still apparently um, uh, exists. Chris Mullin did an interview with Progress years ago in the coalition. And he said Labour needs to become more confident like the Tories. They didn't even win a majority, but they're behaving like they won everything. And that Labour occasionally needs to do that. But of course, the minute you do, the betrayal sets in. Anyway, I think we probably need to wrap up there. But Emma Bunnell, thank you so much for coming in and oh, joining us today. Thank you for having today. me. Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's show. This week, my question is, which Labour leader's middle name was Macintosh. Oh, get Googling people or unless you know it uh, <laughs> instinctively, get your answers in to office at progressonline.org.uk. You can tweet Connor at, at Connor Pope or at Progress Online. Let us know what you think the answer to the question is and you could win a Progress mug. Googling is definitely cheating, although there's no way that we can check. So uh, we need to wrap up now. We've been delighted to have Emma Bunnell joining us today. Send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email or best of all, as an iTunes review, and we'll respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton who produced this podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.